Amen. So if you'll turn to Mark chapter 10, we're going to begin chapter 10 tonight. And begin reading in verse 1. And he arose from thence and came into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again. And as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, Well, what did Moses command you? And they said, Well, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation God made them male and female. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another commits adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. And so, Lord, we pray tonight and we ask you that you'll clearly show us the truths of your word and the permanency of marriage, that you've established one man and one woman to be married for life, and that that's what your word says. And just ask you'll help me to preach this in the right way, help give us all ears to hear what you have to say in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus, you know, we just see here in the beginning of verse 1, he was an, an itinerant preacher. He went everywhere in all of Judea. As Matthew Henry said, that was his parish, the old word they used to use. That was his church, so to speak. He went everywhere preaching. And it says there in verse 1 that as he was a want. And so what is that? Like, I want a new car. I want a new boat. Want means it was his custom. It was what his custom was to do. Wherever he went, the one thing we read repeatedly in Mark, Mark doesn't so much get into the detail of what Jesus taught. He just constantly tells us just Jesus went everywhere teaching, teaching, teaching. Because how does faith come? We still can't get away from it. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I'm saying if you don't daily read your Bible and you're constantly giving yourself over to the media and to other things, it affects your faith. I mean, you want faith to come, just read your Bible on a daily basis, slowly, carefully, prayerfully, and see what it does to your faith, especially when you go through the Old Testament accounts. But that's what he did. He taught and taught and taught. And in Matthew's account of this same text, this same period of what's happening here, it doesn't say in Matthew's account that he taught. In Matthew's account, it says that the crowds came. It doesn't say he taught them, but it says he healed them. It doesn't say anything about teaching. And you know why? Because he would teach them about the kingdom of God. And so when he sent his disciples out, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and preach the kingdom of God. Preach that people need to repent. You're going to teach kingdom ethics, which is what he did on the Sermon on the Mount. But in preaching the kingdom of God, you're not just preaching kingdom ethics and spirit-filled living. You're also preaching that the kingdom of God means that the power of God is here to deliver humanity and anyone that will believe from all the ill effects of the devil. And so he said when he sent them out, you preach the kingdom, he told them, but he also gave his disciples authority, power to cast out demons and to heal the sick and also to do what he did to raise the dead. And they did, didn't they? So they're preaching a full gospel. That's what a full gospel message is. It's not all lopsided where you just come and hear healing messages and praise God for the Holy Spirit. That's part of it. But it's also not just dry doll, nothing but ethics. It's the full package. And that's what he did. And the crowds would come. And they'd hear his teaching, anointed teaching. And they would get healed and miracles would take place. And I'm saying that's what we should be expecting here. That's what a New Testament church is all about. And I'm saying if we're going to be part of this church, I'll say it again. That's what we need to be praying for. That God's presence is seen here. Not just in teaching, not just in opening up his word, but in all respects. So listen, it's like I told those guys last night. We're sitting down in my bed. So what if you knew Jesus was up in my living room? You knew for a fact he's up there. And all of what we've seen in Mark, the power, the ability that he has. And you went up there and you have bring your case to him. Whatever he says to you, whatever, you know it's going to happen. And listen, how is he still present with us? His presence is here by the power of his Holy Spirit. It's the same. 
He hasn't changed. And it's like it says in 1 Corinthians 14, it says there that an unbeliever happens to come into your church. The church is not the place you bring all the unbelievers you can find into, so every time you preach it's evangelism. But he says if an unbeliever gets in there, and the Spirit of God is evident and sensed and felt, and someone prophesies by the power of the Holy Spirit, that man, it says, he'll be brought down to his knees. And he'll say, there's something happened here. God was in you, in this place of a truth. And the same will happen when healings take place. But we have to be expecting that to happen. That the Jesus of the Bible will meet us here and will manifest his presence in power. Mark 16, 20, his word was confirmed. That's what had happened in his ministry. It's what happened in the apostles when they went forth to preach. It's never stopped. In Mark 16, 20, it says they went forth. After his resurrection, after he'd given them a commission, it says they went forth and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word they preached with signs following. And what are the signs that he said would follow? In my name, you'll speak with new tongues. That's there. Speaking in tongues, I don't apologize for that. That is, as far as I'm concerned, biblically, the evidence for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what I believe. I believe the Bible clearly teaches that. And he also says, you'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, not that they might. He says, you shall cast out devils in my name. Those signs, he said, shall follow them that believe. And it goes on. That's what the disciples did. Went forth, preached his word, and it says, those signs followed them. <laughs> and that's what we should expect. Amen. So anyways, he gets here and he teaches them in verse 1. And then in verse 2, it doesn't say what he taught. But when he's done, he engages the Pharisees here. What Mark does share with this is they have a little question and answer session. And so they come and they ask him a question. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? I'm going to tell you, that is a good question. If it's asked with the right motive and from an honest heart. Because I'm going to say, if more people today in our society would honestly ask that question, we wouldn't have the mess we have. Because people today, they don't ask the question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife. You know why? Because in our society today, they do not care. And they especially don't care what the Bible says about it. So they're not going to search the scriptures. They might ask a minister, but most ministers, honestly, are not going to tell a person what the word says. You're going to more than likely hear that God wants you to be happy. He doesn't want you to be in a miserable marriage. He wants you to be happy. You just got to do what you got to do. And so most people aren't going to bother checking it out. But I'm going to say for me personally, you know, if the decision I had to make on a gravest matter as divorce that's going to affect my life, probably the rest of my life, my kids, huge impact on my kids and my relationship with God, I'm not going to depend on a man to make my decision for me. Go to him, tell me what I should do, and then I'm just going to do what that guy asked him to do. I mean, I might listen if I thought it was a godly person. I might listen to what he had to say, but on that especially, I would be like the Bereans, wouldn't you? I mean, man, oh man, that is no small decisions. And I would get in the Word and I would check it out. And like I said about everything, that would be the same with healing. You're going to put your life on the line, your family's life on the line, whoever's life on the line. Don't you think you're not going to just take it because it was set across the pulpit in such a way that you got all worked up or whatever? No, that's something to where you need to get in the word. You clearly see it for yourself. And just like with marriage, trusting God for healing is a commitment you make between you and him. You are the Lord that heals me. I'm committing myself to you. It's the same with marriage. I'm committing to what you say in the Bible because we're the ones, you're the one personally, we can teach here, but you're the one that's going to have to live with your conscience for the rest of your life. The person that's giving you their opinion, they may drop dead the next day. They may not be around, but you are going to have to live one way or another, whatever you decide, right? You're going to have to live with that decision. It's no small thing. But the Pharisees, they are not coming to Jesus and they're not asking this question honestly, because what are they doing? They're laying a trap for him. They're the experts at the law. We've talked about it. And they're experts at manipulating and using that law for their own ends. 
and they're constantly coming to Jesus with questions about the law. That's what they were all about. So Mark 2, we read this when the disciples, if you remember, they're plucking grain with their hands and eating it on the Sabbath, and they come with him and they say, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day do that which is not lawful? They're trying to ask questions on the law and trip them up. And Jesus' answer to them was, have you never read? It's like, come on, you guys. You're supposed to know all this stuff. He says, have you never read about Abiathar, the priest? Don't you remember that? Wasn't that part of your reading too? That Abiathar, the priest, gave David showbread, which was not lawful, Jesus said, for him to eat. He said, but look, there is a higher principle. He said, you know, man wasn't made for the law. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. It was given for the benefit of man. And he said, David's starving to death. He needed to eat. At that point, that meant more than the, just sticking straight with that law in that sense. And then he turns and asks them a question on a Sabbath day. There's that man with the withered hand standing in there. And he asked them, he says, is it lawful? They like to ask that. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? And they were caught in their hypocrisy. And the Bible says they didn't have an answer. The experts of the law, they couldn't answer that one. He got them. So that's the question of the day with the Pharisees. The $64,000 question they were constantly asking, is it lawful? And so they're laying a trap. And right here in verse 2, it says the Pharisees came to him and asked him, is it lawful for a man to put his way his wife? And what does it say they're doing there at the end of that verse? They're tempting him, or it's the same word when Jesus went out into the wilderness. They're testing him, but not in a good way. They're tempting him in a sense they're trying to put him in a trap. And like we've talked about before in the Lord's Prayer, what does it say at the end of the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into, not saying he's saying don't lead us into trials. We're promised those. We can't pray that we're not going to have trials. But he says don't lead us into temptations. These things that are the devil laying snares because he goes on to say, but deliver us from the evil one. Because he's out there laying traps for all of us throughout the day where he is trying to get us. In a thousand different ways. So Mark 12, 14 to 15, you don't have to turn there. Certain of the Pharisees and the Herodians, they came to Jesus. And here's what they're all about. It said they came to him to catch him in his words. And that word catch means to ensnare him in his words. And what did they ask him? How do you think that question started off based on what we've already seen? Is it lawful? They're after him again. And it says right up front, that's all they're trying to do is trap him. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Shall we give or shall we not give? It said, but he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, why tempt ye me? Why are you testing me in this way? He says, bring me a penny that I may see it. And he goes on to say, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and so on and so forth. What we have going on here in this text in Mark is that Pharisees are testing Jesus. They are hypocrites, constantly using the law and their traditions to try to hide their hypocrisy. And what they're doing, they're trying to use it to either excuse or permit the sin that they wanted to commit and the sin that was in their hearts. And if you remember back in Mark 7, it hadn't been that long since we were in Mark 7, when they accused the disciples of eating with unclean hands and violating the tradition of the elders, Jesus rebuked them. He said, Isaiah's done a good job of prophesying about you hypocrites. And he says, as it is written, this people, they honor me with their lips, but with their heart, they're far from me, teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. And so here's what we have going on here. The Pharisees are filled with lust. They were not regenerated people. They had a lust problem. And so they want to justify getting new wives to replace their old ones. So they're coming, and that's the way they would use the law. So they're not using the law with the idea, I want to do the will of God, and I want to love my neighbor, including my wife. Their approach was this, what can I be allowed to do? Or in other words, what can I get away with is how they're coming to the law, not how can I have a pure and loving heart. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is dealing with that, isn't he? He says, you have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. He says, but I say unto you. And then what is he doing throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount? He's dealing with what? 
the heart, isn't he? Not dealing with just outward obedience. And he's saying, look, adultery, unlike the way you Pharisees have made it, they probably could have every single one of them held up their hand and said, I've never committed adultery. And he says, well, wait a minute, you guys are missing this by a million miles because God says every time you sneak and you have that look of lust on one of those young Jewish girls, he said, you've committed adultery in your heart. You've got the seed of it right there. That's where it begins. And that's where the act comes from. And he goes on to say it's the same thing. Adultery is also treating your wife like she's a disposable trash bag that you can just divorce at will. And get rid of because you find some other girl that you think's more shapely. In other words, he's saying you're using the law for divorce as a license to legally commit adultery. That's what he's telling them. He's saying your goal and the way you're using this law is to satisfy your law, not the law of love. So what we have going on here in Mark chapter 10 and in Mark chapter 7 and really the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is always demonstrating, isn't he, what the intention and the will of God is. So what's happened is man in his hard heart and sinful nature has created situations that are like a tangled web. And that's what we have going on in our country. There are so many circumstances and situations of people in divorce and remarriage situations more than you could ever untangle or name. They're countless. And so that's why he says what he says down in verse 5 of Mark 10. And Jesus answered and said unto them, It's for the hardness of your heart that Moses had to write you that precept. He's like, God's law never endorsed divorce or promoted it or said, this is what I want you to do. Just like God's law never promoted slavery, never promoted polygamy. But it was a fact that he had to regulate it. And that's all he says he's doing here with divorce. So in verse 2, they're asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The question of whether a divorce could happen, that wasn't a question that a first century Jew was asking. The only question they're asking at that time is, what are the permitted grounds? How is it permitted? They're not asking at this point, can I get a divorce? They're just saying, what's the permission? What permission are you granting? And we've heard Brother Hamilton taught this two or three times faithfully. So there was two schools of thought back then. There was the school of Shimei, which is, he said, the only basis for divorce is unchastity or adultery or unfaithfulness. And that was the minority view. That was not the popular view by any means. It was the minority view. And Hillel said this. This is the other view. He may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him, for it is written, because he has found in her indecency in anything. So the emphasis with them is indecency in anything. They're not wondering what the indecency is. They like the anything. Well, we can find that in a, like they used to say, a burnt piece of toast. That's indecent, they would say. This is all out of the Mishnah. And this R. Akabas says, even if he has found another fairer than she, for it is written... And it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes. In other words, this one, she just doesn't look like she did when I married her. She has no favor in my eyes. And that is, we'll see, that's what it says in Deuteronomy 24. And they take that to mean, well, so she's gotten a little ugly. You find somebody else that looks fair. That's what the law allowed. That's what the liberals would have said. So the conservative school of Shammai said it had to be adultery. The liberal school of Hillel said a spoiled meal was all it took. And I'm saying, I could have got rid of my wife last week. That's all it took. Because her brother's coming over and she's got this new recipe on fries working and it ruined the meal. We had to go out to eat. I could have been like, man, yeah, that just cost me a hundred bucks, woman. We're heading to divorce court. I got it right there, Deuteronomy 24, and I'm an Old Testament guy now, you know. Just kidding. Now, my wife cooks great. I'm not going to have her down here. I can see what I get tonight. Be more than a little spoiled. Well, listen, that was the culture they were in. They weren't wondering, can we get divorced? Is it? Per-? They're just like, what's the limits of it? That's all they're debating about. So divorce wasn't a problem. It's like, oh, yeah, come to one of these liberals. You're having a trouble, a little problem with Mrs. Uh, don't worry about it. Just sign here. I got this form. It's already made out. I've given out 100 this week. Just sign here and everything's solved. And I saw you were walking, you know, walking with Miss Sarah the other day. She'll make a fine wife. Everything will be all right. Just, just hold on. And Jesus' answer to that is, you can do that 
I'm going to tell you, he's saying in this, he's saying you're going to be in trouble with God because easy divorce or divorce for any reason was never God's intention. And if that is your heart, he's saying you need to repent because just obeying the letter can violate the spirit of the law. That's what the Lord would say. And when he says that, because of the way that culture was, we know that that was the culture because his own disciples, they can't believe their ears. Like, what are you saying? We have never heard this before. And they go to him in Matthew 19 and they say, well, if the case of the man is so with his wife, it's better not to marry. They're like, you mean we could possibly be stuck with that thing I got at home and there's no way out? You're saying no prenuptials? Jesus, are you sure? That's what they're asking him. So anyways, down here in Mark 10, they ask him that question, tempting him, setting the trap, and Jesus springs their trap. Right there in verse 3, he says, well, what did Moses command you? And you know, he knew what their answer was going to be. It's the only place they could have gone in the law. But where does he take them? Deuteronomy 24. And let's go look at it. Deuteronomy 24. First four verses in Deuteronomy 24. Moses wrote, when a man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he has found some, there we have the no favor in his eyes, okay? Because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and gives it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after that she is defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance." Deuteronomy 24, Jesus is telling us, was not intended to be God's will. All it was intended for was to regulate man's sinful, hard heart. So he's not endorsing divorce. He's not giving guidelines for divorce, but basically saying, if you're bent on getting rid of your wife, then you have to at least do this. This is like the minimum. You got to give her a writing certificate because if they didn't do that and that woman just was sent out of that house and nobody knew what happened, she didn't have that certificate to be produced, she could be accused of adultery and stoned. That's what could have happened, possibly stoned. So all it's doing, that law and that regulation was just trying to keep the damage of divorce to a minimum and the frequency to a minimum because the guy has to write out why he's doing it. And that might be a little embarrassing. I don't know, depending on what you're writing about. So they had to put it in writing why he was divorcing his wife. And when he did that, then he couldn't remarry her. That kept the wife slopping down to a minimum, too, is what that was all about. So back to Mark 10. What we have, Jesus tells him. Here's his answer. They said, well, Moses said we could write a bill of divorcement and put her away. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is what he said, it's for the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. He said, but from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. He's telling them, look, Moses, I asked you what Moses, Moses wrote a little bit more than Deuteronomy 24 because Moses also wrote the book of Genesis 2.24. In other words, Jesus is telling them, look, you guys, it's just like he said about the thing with David and them eating the grain. Have you never read? You guys only pick out certain verses. How much you ever looked at the overall comparing scripture with scripture and what is God trying to say? And he's like, you don't go to Deuteronomy 24 to determine whether divorce is lawful or God's will. That was just a provision, he's telling them, for your hard, sinful hearts. If you want to find God's will, he's saying, go back to the beginning. Go back to Genesis. Go back to the creation account. That's where you're going to find that. And he's telling them if Genesis, with what God wrote there, is God's will, then the one flesh union is permanent. And it is always against his will to divorce. It is always against God's will to divorce, period, without exception. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. That's what we've been taught here. And I agree with that. So 
What happens though, and somebody said this, when provision is made for sin, to do it a sinful way, and that becomes the norm or the right. I have a right to do this. Just look at our society, because that's the way Christians and non-Christians feel about their marriages. We have a right to divorce if we want to. And I'm telling you, the bad news is, I'm not going to bore you with a bunch of statistics, but divorce rate is higher in Protestant churches than it is in the unregenerate world. You know why? Because all this emphasis, you can't do no wrong. You get divorced. Well, that's a sin that can be repented of. Don't worry about it. Just stay with whoever you're with at the particular time. Now, I'm not saying it's not a sin that can be forgiven, but it's taught as a right. And it's disgraceful because you point to Spain that is a highly Catholic country and they don't grant all this. You can divorce for any reason. And they have a very still a very, very low divorce rate. They put us to shame. So one man said this, God's design for unbroken, lifelong marriage, it isn't just the ideal, like do it if you can, but if you can't, don't worry about it, it's what he's saying. He said, but it's the realistic standard to which we are expected to conform and on which the health of human society depends because we have a sick nation at this point, literally. So here's the question and the problem. Here's the question. Who is it that you have to ask? Who is it that joins a man and a woman together? Who is it that joins them together? Is it the government? Does the church do that? Is it because these two people decided that they're going to get together? Is that what happens? Because the answer to the question of who joins man and woman together is God. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. It says, what therefore, who is joined together? God has joined together. He says, let not man put asunder. So when that's the answer, what is that saying? Who is the Lord of the marriage union? God is. He's the Lord. And the problem comes when man, whoever he is, makes himself the Lord of the union and discards his wife like a piece of goods for lust. That's where the problem is. Man has no right to make himself Lord of a marriage union based on what we just read in verse 9. So Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' question, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? His answer is no. Certainly not, is what he's saying. No, it's not lawful if by that you mean God's will. He's saying no, it's not. Not if you're talking about God's will, God's tension, God's desire. That's what he's saying there, isn't it? So you go back to the garden to find out. God, there's no permission there. There's no, <laughs> uh-uh. He's saying it's one man for life. And that's the trap that the Pharisees are trying to use to set up Jesus with his answer. You know why? The beginning of that, it tells where he's at. You know, Jesus right now, you know whose territory he's preaching in? Herod's. Herod's territory. And what got John the Baptist's head cut off? In Mark 6, 18, John told Herod, we're back to the lawful stuff. He told Herod, he said, it is not lawful, Mr. Herod, for you and Miss Herodias. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. What you're doing, he just flat out told him to his face. It's not lawful what you're doing. And Herod's wife didn't take kindly to that remark. Because it said, old Herodias, therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and she was seeking to kill him. And it says for a while Herod wouldn't let it happen, but he got set up. He just wasn't smarter than that woman. And he got done in by his own lust, a little dance. And she got his head. And the Pharisees are hoping, hey, we got Jesus here. He's in Herod's territory. They seem to be real. They, these Herod people, Herod and Herodias, they're kind of sensitive to this. Is it lawful? So they're coming to Jesus. So let's get the right answer out of him. What was their intention? They weren't asking this an honest question. They're tempting him, setting him up, catching him in his words. He says the right thing. Boys, all we got to do is go take that to the king. And we've got him out of the way. They'll cut his head off. So they're saying, hey, just tell us what John said. It's not lawful. Please, Jesus, just do that and it'll work. And here's the beauty, I think, of Jesus' answer, the wisdom of God. What does he do? He's not as direct as John. He says, I'm going to take you back to Moses. Moses will tell you what God's will is. 
And you know what? They're not going to argue with Moses. He's a prophet of God, came from God. So he didn't compromise one bit, but that's the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ in that answer. Constantly befuddled those guys. They're trying to set a trap, and he tripped the trap and get away. We need to remember the context of Mark 10. Because here and in Matthew 5, when Jesus spoke of divorce, in context, what did he say? What did we just go over last Wednesday? He's saying there are things in your life, if they cause you to stumble, you need to what? You need to be willing to cut them off, your hand, your foot, pluck at your eye. Isn't that the same context when he talked about adultery in Matthew 5? So he's saying if you got that lust in your heart and you're married, you need to cut that out. Because no, it's not an option. And in our society, there's all kinds of pressure, all kinds of why are you living with somebody you really don't like. Look how she is. <laughs> and Jesus says, nah, -uh, you better cut that off because that's going to get you in trouble with the Lord. Because it's not hard to understand what he says, what his words are. So a Christian's heart, remember we talked about this too in context in Mark chapter 9. He says, a Christian's heart is not to just get your way, is it? That was their problem, wasn't it? The disciples, they want to have their way. They want to be kings and be rulers and have people ruling over them. All this stuff. He says, no, you guys got it upside down. And that's going to carry over into your marriage. That's, to me, this Mark chapter 10 is illustrating of, here's the thing, society may allow it, but not us. You better cut that off. They may allow it. They may allow someone to lust and divorce and get somebody else or do like they do in Hollywood. Sit around and watch those movies all the time. That's what's going on. But he's saying, no, 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 that's not God's kingdom. So it's to serve others, isn't it? Put yourself last, and that includes your mate. So here in Mark 10, verses 6 to 8, he gives the threefold pattern of marriage. So he says, from the beginning of the creation... God made them male and female. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they too shall be one flesh. So then they are no more two, but one flesh. Right away when he says male and female, do I have to comment? I'm not going to make the worn out old, it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, okay? I mean, that's basically been worn out. But I'm saying in light of what our country is saying is a legitimate marriage, he says he made them male and female. That's not hard to understand, right? That's kind of like an accepted. What he goes on to say here, though, he said that he's made them male and female. And for this cause, verse 7, shall a man leave his father and mother. So the first process is you're going to leave your parents. And that's going to cause a little disruption in a household, isn't it? It will in mine. I don't have anybody married yet, but I'm telling you right now, when one of my kids comes, and some of you, I've watched other people experience this, it will be a disruption because I know the way my family, we will be laughing and crying at the same time whenever that announcement gets made. But I'll say this, I've seen it happen with my friends. It's going to be hard for me to give up one of my girls to some guy. So I've seen my friends deal with it, and I know... Part of that's going to be, depending on who it is, I'm going to have trouble restraining myself not wanting to get in their business. Sometimes you see that, don't you? You see parents, they're just too much in their kids' business. It says leave, leaving father and mother. It's a disruption. That guy is supposed to be the head of his house, not his parents the head of his house. Isn't that the way it is? I'm going to say, Lisa and I, we had my in-laws and my parents. They were not happy about us getting married. And especially her dad, because what he understood about our church, he's like, my daughter's going into a cult. Wasn't happy about that at all. And he came to her the night before we got married, crying, practically begging her not to. But I'll say this much for him. She said, Dad, this is what I want to do. Da, 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 da. And after that, he never got in our business. And there's times I know he wanted to. But he respected our decision, respected our marriage, and supported us as best he could. And I know he thought I was a nut. But I'll say it was a leave and cleave situation, and that's the way we need to be sometimes. You just you cannot be in. I mean, I'm not saying this from experience. My kids haven't gotten married yet, but I've seen it. And I've experienced it. My, my parents, they let us do things that they, it's not like you can't go to your parents for advice or give your kids advice, but as far as getting in there and manipulating things, it's just not right. 
And the second thing it says is he's going to leave father and mother, and then there's going to be a union with the wife, a cleaving. And that word has the idea of glue. It was actually used in, in ancient literature, that word cleaving, when a warrior had his sword in his hand, and a valiant warrior, he's hacking his enemies, the blood of his enemies is on his hand and on that sword, and it's stuck because of that blood acted like glue, it's cleaved to the sword. You could not pry it apart. That's what that word means. The marriage union, he's saying, is put together with divine gorilla glue. That's what that's telling us there. Supernatural glue that cannot be dissolved by man. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and he will cleave to his wife. They will be glued. And because of that, he goes on to say they're going to become one flesh. And they twain shall be, verse 8, one flesh. And what all that involves, we don't entirely know. At least we can't put it all in words. Because Paul says in Ephesians 5.32 that this is a great mystery. Aren't there things with your wife? You're like, man, we'll joke about it all the time. My wife and I, well, we're one flesh. That's how this and that happened. Or that's how we thought the same. Or that's how we felt, you know. That's just the way it works, right? You can't always put it in words, but you know it's there. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. It's a new manner of existence is what he's saying. The two shall become one flesh. A new manner of existence between a husband and a wife. So it's something Jesus is saying. That glue there, when they leave and cleave, it unites them in a way in the core of their being that you can't explain. And he's saying, Jesus says, look, it's no longer two people. Isn't that what he says? It's no more twain, no more two people. But God, in some mysterious way, has made them one. Isn't that what it says? I don't think I'm reading into that. That's what he says. No longer two independent beings that can go their own way whenever they choose. But that's what the world thinks about their marriages, don't they? We don't get along anymore, never should have gotten married, I no longer have any feelings for you, and all that. And the Bible says, no, you're no longer two independent persons, but you are an indivisible, indivisible unit. God has joined married people together supernaturally. So it's not saying that that one flesh unit should not be separated, but what is it saying here? It's saying it cannot be separated. Look in verse 8 again. It says, And they too shall be one flesh, so then they are no more two, but one flesh. Are indivisible. And I'm saying that principle doesn't just apply in the Garden of Eden. Oh, well, yeah, we can see it there. There wasn't anybody else around. No, it doesn't just apply there. He goes back to that. But that's where it begins, and it goes right on up to Moses' day. It goes up into Jesus' day, because that's what he just said. And it goes right on ad nauseum, till people aren't getting married anymore. They are one flesh, indivisible. So look what we have here in verse 9. Jesus is pitting God against man. He says, what therefore God, theos, what he, theos, has joined together, let not man, anthropos, split apart. So he right there is expressly forbidding divorce. Let not man put asunder. Do you know that is a command? In the Greek, it's called an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Let not man put asunder. So he's saying God brought two people together. He's the author and glue of the union. And you are forbidden to separate it. Forbidden to do that, to put a division in the union that God has created. He's saying once that process, that threefold process of leaving, cleaving, and God is joined, once that happened, that is a fact, not a choice anymore. That is a fact that has happened, not a choice that you can dissolve. And the Pharisees didn't look at it like that. No, it's just as simple. It's just a contract. Marriage is just a contract. And Jesus says, no, it's not. It's way more than that, whether you realize it or not, in an organic living union. One flesh, sexually and in a mysterious ways, we can't explain. But it is one flesh, he's saying. Two lives are now one. 
Two wills are one. Two purposes become one. One flesh joined by God permanently, not by a piece of paper. Not just a body you're married to that you can just use until you get tired of it. Not just an object of your lust. But he's saying it's a simple, permanent union. And he's saying as plainly as he can that marriage is for life. Amen? We've heard that before. So they go on in verse 10, they get to the house. And the disciples, the apostles are like, man, we need a little further clarification, Jesus. I mean, I don't really don't know that we heard you exactly right. You're kind of seeming to imply that divorce isn't okay with God. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> and he doesn't make it any easier with what he says in verse 11 and 12. Look what he says. And he said unto them, whosoever shall, that's a whosoever, shall put away his wife and marry another, commits adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. Now, he doesn't make it any easier with his explanation. All he's doing is he's spelling out the implications of what he had said earlier, what he said to the crowds. And he makes two statements that cover all the bases, doesn't he? He says, so if a man, we're dealing with the man, if he divorces his wife and he remarries, he plainly says he commits adultery. The same thing said in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and in Luke 16, 18. He goes on to say, he covers the other base. If a woman divorces her husband and remarries, she commits adultery. Now that remark right there about the woman, that is only in Mark who was Mark written to? We're not 100% certain, but more than likely, I believe Mark was written to the Romans. And in Roman society, a woman it was a lot more common for a woman to get a divorce. It happened. In Jewish society, it happened, but it was rare. So that's why Mark includes this here, I believe. Not that Jesus didn't say it. But all those statements result with the same understanding that divorce followed by remarriage results in adultery. Divorce followed by remarriage results in adultery. So verse 9, up to verse 9, that's all Jesus gave the crowds. And what's he telling them with what he said? He says, no divorce, period. That's what they got up to verse 9. But verses 11 and 12 spell out the further implications, the rest of the story, the Paul Harvey rest of the story. So he's not changing the subject. But what he's basically saying is, if what I said up to verse 9 is true, then this is what it implies. This is what it further implies that he didn't tell him. So, you know, you got a thief that steals a million bucks. The fact is, the money's not his. It's stolen money. And so the further implication would be, if he goes and buys a house with that stolen money, does he own the house? No. So he's saying, look, if God's designed it one flesh permanent then you go and do something else. That constitutes adultery. And that's what he's saying. So the basis for Jesus declaring divorce and remarriage to be adultery is that the original one flesh relationship is inseparable. And it doesn't matter a purported claim to divorce. Well, the judge said it was okay. The politicians say it's okay. Look at all the movie stars. <laughs> they think it's great. A priest or a pastor told me it was okay. He's saying none of that matters. They can claim your remarriage is not adultery, but God says no man can put asunder that one flesh relationship. Isn't that what it says there in verse 9? What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Say nobody can do that. He says, so whatever you do, you can say whatever you want to. You go out, you're committing adultery, even though you say you've got a writing and divorce, just as much as if that man had relations with another woman during the marriage. Just the same is what he's saying. That's what it says. And so you're asking, well, what about the exception clauses? Ain't going to tell you tonight. <laughs> but we'll deal with that next time. But I think 1 Corinthians 7 is pretty clear about remarriage. And we could also add uh, verse 39. Why don't you just turn over there, please? 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 11. Paul writes, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Now he's saying this is the Lord's command. We've already read it in Mark 10. He says, Let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her do what? 
let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. And I believe the only biblical exception on remarriage is really not an exception. It's called death. And so if you're in 1 Corinthians 7, just look over in verse 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband be dead, she's at liberty to be married to whom she will. Not just whom she will, he adds, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment, and I think also that I have the Spirit of God, he says in verse 40. So let me just end by saying this with all these romanticized ideas that you're going to get on TV and the movies of marriage and love. It's infected our society. Young people need to understand that the fairy tale of people that are married never has heard a discouraging word in the household. Yeah, if you get through the honeymoon, good. But the reality is people clash, right? Does anyone want to stand up? Because I'd love to hear your testimony that you and your husband and you and your mate never had any words ever in your marriage. I'd love to hear the testimony. I can't give that testimony. I'm sorry, I can't. I'm, I'm probably heading on the other extreme. Me and my wife were... Whatever, but, but God's blessed us. But what I'm going to say is that doesn't mean your marriage with your spouse is a continual nightmare. My marriage has not been a continual nightmare by any means. And I think you grow in love. These last two years of me being a pastor brought me and my wife closer together than anything else could have. I'll tell you that for a fact. We get along great. So there's growth in love that God produces. And he's going to do a growth within each other as whoever you're married to. But here's what I will counsel any young people in here, that you want to have the best marriage possible, then I would say, I just wrote down these simple guidelines, and this isn't saying everything. But number one, I would say the simple thing we heard a million and one times, but yet it still happens, and that is don't be unequally yoked. And I said this back when I taught that thing about Abraham, sent out the final wife for Isaac. I'm saying to me, everyone wants to say, oh, well, they're a Christian. Well, I'm saying fine. <laughs> okay, I'm saying you're going to run into trouble. And I've heard of cases of this, people that marry people that don't believe the same way. They don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that can work out, but it can be problems. And I've heard of major problems. I'm saying I personally, when I was believing for a wife, got saved when I was 21. And when I started praying, I didn't want to just marry anybody. I wanted to marry somebody that had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Most of all, I wanted to marry, my prayer was to marry somebody that loved the Lord more than me. That's what I wanted. I don't want them loving me first. And Lord answered that prayer. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I think, you know, you need to determine as a Christian what are the, the big things, so to speak, in your belief system. Because if trusting God for healing, if your education, how you want to raise the kids, how you look at working, should the wife be out working or do you want her to stay at home? I mean, that's the kind of stuff you better get past all the looking in the eyes and all that other and talk about those kinds of things. Whether you want to have children or not, because here's what's out there. Somebody could say they're a Christian and all this kind of stuff. I got saw this today it was on a website I looked at. In the large majority, this is the modern Americans ages 18 to 34, belief systems in most people in our society have changed drastically since 1975 because it's saying now the majority of young Americans believe that education and economic accomplishments are more important. More than half of them believe marrying and having children is not very important. And I'm going to tell you, we need to get back to what does the Bible say? What is the purpose of marriage? To get married and not have kids? Huh? I don't quite see that in the Bible. So in 1975, 8 in 10 people were married by the time they were 30. 8 in 10 now are not married until they're 45. That's just the different trends. Only 14, listen to this, 14% of modern millennial women are homemakers nowadays. 14%. 43% of them were in 1975, and my Catholic mom was one of them. A faithful homemaker. I'm glad she was. I'm thinking, hmm, you got to watch what you're marrying these days, young men and women. I would be, I'd be very careful. 
Because we're talking about the permanency of marriage. You don't want to get gorilla glued to somebody you're thinking, oh, I made a big mistake and I'm glued to them. Gorilla glued before God. You don't want to have to deal with that. Also, like I said, I think you want to have the person who loves the Lord more than you because that's what's going to keep them true to you. You're worried about your spouse cheating on you? Well, I'll tell you what, if they fear the Lord more than your good looks and sparkling personality, they'll stay true to you. That's the truth. And you'll be able to work things out because God will help you get through all that. Amen? Amen. He will. And the last thing I would say is if I was believing for a mate, I wouldn't be looking and saying, I just don't see anything here. (laughs) And I'm just somehow, I guess he'll work it out or I guess I'm just doomed to be single for the rest of my life. Well, if it's in your heart to be married, I think a good idea, that might be a good thing to start praying about and seeking the Lord. Maybe even doing a little fasting and see what God can do. Because I went to a little church. I mean, there probably wasn't 20 people in that church. There wasn't. I've, I've told this story before. And the one teenage girl there, I'm just like, I'll marry the Lord if I have to, but I really don't want to. My, my sister's like, John, you don't have to marry somebody you're not attracted to. God can do better than that. I'm like, praise the Lord. Thank you, sister. That's my, my real sister told me that. But, I mean, if I just looked in the natural at the church I was at and the prospects and all, that had been hopeless. But I'm saying I made it a matter of prayer. Prayed quite a bit about it. And not right away. I wanted to get grounded in my Christian faith. But there came a time it was in my heart. I'm ready to get married, Lord. I feel like it's in my heart. Started praying about it. And there she sits. Amen. So God's faithful. As you think about it, you think about if you got your own kids, you're going to want to see your kids have the perfect mate. Bring them away. You're not going to want to see them lonely. And how much more God, our Heavenly Father, would be that way. Amen. Get you the person that's not going to mess you up, but the right mate for life. That's what he'll do. I really do believe he'd do that for you. Amen. So we'll pick it up next time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. And we thank you that you faithfully taught us these truths before in your past, in the past, Lord, and uh, given us hearts to receive it and that we can see that This marriage union we're involved in is a permanent union. And we thank you, Lord, for the beauty of that, that it displays the glory of your gospel, Lord, that you've chosen us, your bride, your church, and despite all our faults, despite all our imperfections, you don't cast us off, but you stay with us. You're committed to us. That's what you say the marriage union is all about. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for that beautiful illustration in your word. And we just ask that the marriages here in this church will glorify you and and we'll speak of your faithfulness in the community. Uh, and I just ask you'll strengthen all the marriages here. And for the young people, Lord, I pray tonight as pastor of this church that the ones that want maids, Lord, that you will provide maids for them. Good, godly women or men that have a heart to follow you wholly. And I ask you'll do that in Jesus' name. Amen.